you are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. Hi, everybody, and welcome a day. If you're a guest visitor, so thrilled you're here. Welcome everybody online, no matter where or when you are watching. As you can see, we're in a series in the book of Jonah, and here we come to week three, chapter three. Your reading is going to be on the screen in front of you. Here we go. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. <laughs> and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, do you have any right to be angry? And that's the reading of God's word. (laughs) All his people said, amen. Yeah, so far we have been with Jonah in the boat. Last week we were with Jonah in the fish. This week we are with Jonah in the city, the great city of Nineveh. It was the capital of the Assyrian empire. It's modern day Iraq. And God, the text And history themselves all tell us how great the city was. Matter of fact, in Jonah's day, Nineveh was the greatest, most powerful city in the greatest and most powerful empire in the world. But we also know from God, from a text, from history, that Nineveh wasn't just a significant place. It was a wicked place. It was full of violence. It was full of evil. Uh, one historian, we saw her words a couple of weeks back. She, she called Nineveh's history this, quote, as gory and as blood-curdling a history as we know. Another historian basically referred to Assyria as, as national terrorists in that day. And God here has come to deal with it. God's come to deal with it and to do something about it. But, but the surprising twist... We're going to see today in the second half, the back half of the book is found in chapter three, because as we're going to see, it's not only the violence of Nineveh that needs to be dealt with, 
It's also the violence in Jonah's heart that needs to be dealt with. So today I want to take a look at something that I don't think any honest look at the book of Jonah would be complete without. I want to look at the very reason that Jonah was sent to preach against the city of Nineveh, which is specifically the wickedness of violence. Violence. And when I say violence, I want to just, so we're all clear, I'm not talking about a righteous or justified use of force to restrain evil or to bring peace, which our law enforcement and our military are asked to task to do, to steward those things, and for which I am grateful. I hope you are too. Nor am I talking about a justified use of force and self-defense. No, no, because there is a difference between a righteous use of force versus a culture of a love for an acceptance of violence. So we're asking questions today like, where does violence come from? How can we respond to it? And how can maybe even a culture's heart and people's heart be changed? Let's look today at what Jonah chapter three has to say about the subject of and God's surprising, and here's the word, tender and category shattering solution and remedy for violence. And by the way, if this is a surprise for you, we're talking about this, all I can say is you should have seen it coming. It's been on the video for like three weeks now. So anyway, I'll also give you one guess as to what we're talking about next week. (laughs) That's in there too. Here we go. We're going to look at chapter three of Jonah in four parts. We're looking at the violence of Nineveh, the violence of Jonah, our response to violence, and finally God's solution for violence. Here we go. Number one, let's take a look at the violence of Nineveh. Okay. We read, we read this back in verse eight, I think it was, that the king of Nineveh, after Jonah goes and he preaches just for a day in the city, we see that the king of Nineveh, the message reaches him and he makes this proclamation. He gives a decree. That's an executive order, if you will. In verse eight, he says this to all the people, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Now, extreme violence wasn't just something that was unique to Nineveh or Assyria. Of course, uh, violence was common across ancient cultures. We know this. And you could also flash forward a couple of centuries, a few centuries, like seven, uh, to ancient Rome where they had gladiator contests, where the things like people were being eaten by lions for public fun what they cheered for. Citizens would come out and cheer for these things. Female babies were thrown out in abundance. And there was virtually no care for the poor whatsoever in these ancient cultures. Why were so many of these ancient polytheistic cultures so violent? Well, someone by the name of St. Augustine, you probably heard of him, great African scholar, thinker, pastor, in his book, maybe you were made to read this back in the day, it's called The City of God. And in the book, he leveled a devastating critique against the worldview of polytheism. And it goes like this. He said, if there is one God, as Judaism and Christianity has claimed, if there is one supreme being above everyone else and one supreme word above everything else, that means the word, excuse me, the world is originally and is inherently an orderly and peaceful place. And God, springing out of his own nature and character, is in the business of bringing the world back into a place of peace and order and justice. And we, as creatures made in his image and likeness, find our meaning to the degree that we participate in doing the same. 
That was his argument. On the other hand, he said, consider polytheism. There isn't one God, there are many gods, and they're at war with each other. They're like fighting each other all the time in their myths. There's not one supreme being, one supreme word, one supreme truth. Instead, there are many truths, many claims being made among many gods who duke it out over their own viewpoint. Therefore, the world, he said, at its root from a polytheistic worldview, is inherently chaotic and inherently violent. And therefore, he went on to say, if polytheism is true, you're way less likely to ever have a just society. You cannot have a peaceful society because, think about it, who's to say what's just? Who's to say what's right and wrong? And at its core, he argued, polytheism tends to be violent because it sees nature itself as violent. And polytheistic people, therefore, are never more like their deities when they're being violent. And he says, if you want the proof, just look at ancient Rome. Sure, they talked a lot about philosophy, big ideas, but at its core, at its root, what was responsible for the expansion of the Roman Empire? Wasn't philosophy. Soldiers, violence, war, conquest. You say, well, that was back then. No, my gosh, it's so good now that our Western worldview doesn't believe the world is inherently violent. Okay, all right, don't be so sure. What did nearly everyone, if you went to college, nearly nearly every one of your philosophy professors and biology professors teach you in college? Come on, that there is no one supreme being, there is no one supreme lawgiver, and therefore nature is, as the poet William Blake put it, nature is red in tooth and in claw. Nature drips with blood. Because after all, what is the engine of atheistic Darwinian evolutionary theory? Yeah, strong eat the weak. Strong eat the weak, survival of the fittest. If there is no God, if there's no truth, then there's no way to say, come on, that the idea of justice exists. There's no real hope for a just society. Why would there ever be peace and justice? That is totally unnatural. If we're fighting for justice in an atheistic, Darwinian, evolutionary world, we're literally going against our nature, the very grain of the fabric of the world. Who's to say what's right or just? And so what Augustine said then is still true today. If there's no God, what's to stop anyone from using power to their own ends? What's to stop anyone from doing anything they want? The ancient polytheists, therefore, looked up to their chaotic gods and built their morality off of that. Modern secular atheists look down to chaotic nature and build their morality off of that. Different starting point, but can you see it's the same ultimate destination? A complete lack of basis for a just, peaceful, moral society. You may be saying here, Morgan, I'm a guest here, or kind of picking on me. Don't worry, we're going to pick on everybody. All right, that's still to come. (laughs) Morgan, I'm a relativist, don't really believe in a God, but I'm not violent. I love things like peace and justice. Great, I'm, I'm glad. Better than the alternative. That's fine, but why? And how, how can you, if that's you, with any real degree of authentic, coherent meaning, believe in that? It's not coherent. And if you say, Morgan, why do I have to be coherent? (laughs) Let me ask you. When I give you my answer to your question, would you like me to be coherent or not? Okay, wait, that'll sink in later. Okay, (laughs) anyway, not as much of a punchline as I hoped it'd be. That's okay, I'll go back to work on it. 
Aldous Huxley, the famous atheist, wrote A Brave New World. You may have been forced to read that one too. Said the philosophy of relativism really means you can get away with doing whatever you want. Look how he put it. He said the philosopher who finds no meaning for this world, like no such thing as truth, is not concerned exclusively with the problem of pure metaphysics. Things like ideas. He's also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants or why his friends should not seize political power and govern in the way that they find most advantageous to themselves. He concluded like this, for myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness, no right, no wrong, was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. What's he saying? He's saying if there's no God and nature is essentially violent, why can't I do to you whatever I want? Might makes right. Why can't I sleep with whoever I want or force people to? Why can't governments do whatever they want? Tolerance, peace, justice. You just made that stuff up, he's saying. There's no God. And by the way, when Alice Huxley and Augustine agree on something, you may want to pay attention to it. If there's no one supreme lawgiver, then violence, the point is, violence is a legitimate and unsurprising outcome. Now, if you're a Christian here and you're saying you've been applauding eternally the whole time, you're like, yeah, that's right, Morgan. No surprise, we have been losing our way today for decades. Man, we kicked God out of school, took away this, God, our culture's becoming more violent. We've lost our way because there's no God. That is part of it, for sure, but hang on. Because the paganism of Nineveh isn't the only source of violence in the book, is it? No. Yes, the people of Nineveh are wicked and immoral, but who else acts wickedly and in his own way violently, as we'll see? Come on. It's not just the polytheist. It's the monotheist. Both the relativist and the God-fearing moralist here are shown to be people in need of change. It's not just the violence of Nineveh we're shown, but number two, also the violence of Jonah. Okay. Perhaps, now, as we move into this, perhaps the greatest surprise in the whole book, it kind of is for me, the greatest surprise in the whole book, the whole story, the whole narrative, is Jonah's response to Nineveh's repentance. What happened? Well, we read it. Jonah goes to the streets. He's in the streets preaching in Nineveh. And he goes around saying, give up your violence. You know, 40 more days. And that's all you got. Or God's going to judge you if you don't repent. And then they do it. And anyone, come on, who's involved in work like this, social reform, activist, social worker, pastor, missionary, anybody who cares about the people they're talking to, preaching to, would be thrilled beyond words if their message had such an effect. I mean, you're kind of like, wow, how about that? It actually worked. Like, they, they actually listened to me. This is brilliant. You'd be blown away. And you expect Jonah to be thrilled and blown away. And you kind of expect the book to end right there. After Nineveh's repentance, you're like, there was the happy ending. Right, that's how it should have ended, like a Bible, you know, fairy tale kind of thing. You expect the last verse in the book to kind of go something like this. And therefore, Jonah returned to his own land, exceedingly joyful, praising the Lord as he went. But he doesn't do that. The book doesn't end like that. What happens next? But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Uh Uh-oh, record scratch. And he became angry. Now we laugh, but literally in the Hebrew it says this. Jonah became evil. And he burned on the inside. Wait, hang on. 
who became evil, who burned with anger, not the pagan, but the prophet. What's happened? Jonah has become evil and violent when God forgave. And he goes out and he crawls up on, sits on top of a hill and almost every commentator will tell you what he's doing there is waiting for God to blast them. That's what he's hoping for. He's outside the city, not inside it. He remembers that story in Genesis about Sodom and Gomorrah. He's hoping it's gonna happen again. And he's putting himself at a safe distance from the divine nuclear warfare. He's hoping God's gonna rain down on his enemies. And what the Bible shows us here, quite honestly, is frightening. It's kind of scary because what it shows us here is that it's not just polytheism and pagan people that tend to violence. It's also monotheistic, moral people that can tend towards evil and violence. Because what's Jonah doing? He's comparing himself morally to others, judging them, hating them, now rooting for their destruction. Not, think about it, not because they have continued on with their violence, but because they've stopped it. In his mind, he's so superior to everybody else because he worships the one true God. He follows the commandments. He's got his WWJD bracelet on, right? I mean, his James Avery cross ring. He's sexually pure. And yet his morality has led him to hate those who don't have a biblical worldview showing he doesn't really have a biblical worldview. And the same is true for you and me. If your biblical worldview allows you to sit at home and watch the news at night and start to hate those people, hate those people, hate those people, your worldview isn't biblical. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, was Was I direct enough there? I'm sorry. All right. In other words, there's a danger. The point is to not just being a relativistic atheist, a danger to being a God-fearing moralist. Why? Because the tendency of every human heart is to take any good thing, even morals, rules, commandments, and turn them into a means of oppression and violence. And the real danger, of course, is this. It's that people who are doing this, who see themselves as morally superior, and I've been this person, can rarely see the damage they're doing and they can commit their violence in the name of being good, in the name of being moral, in the name of God. Look at the prayer Jonah prays. See where his anger is coming from. We'll see it more in depth next week, of course. But he says this. He says, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. How many of you got in gratitude to God about that? Not me. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in love. You're a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, kill me. It's better for me to die than live. What's he saying? He's saying, God, I knew you were compassionate. And I'm like, and I would rather die than live in a universe run by a stinking, loving God like you. You forgive too much. That's your problem. Now, it's a little funny, but it's more mostly dark. Because what we're being shown here is that both relativism and moralism carry in themselves the seeds of violence, which, by the way, is a far cry from what people on both sides of our culture wars tell us today. The moralists, let's just say on one particular news channel or more, blame the relativists for the problems in society 
And the relativists on those other channels blame the moralists. Moralists say today we need to return to our strong traditional moral values. Overlooking the fact that moralism has been and is a source of violence in the world. And relativists say, oh, this is why we need to end religion or at least like super water it down. But they ever looked at facts that atheism has been a source of more bloodshed in the world in the form of Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, dictators than moralism has ever been. Countless millions of people lost, lives murdered in the name of atheism and ending faith, God, church, religion. The point is the Bible's way more nuanced and likely your media source of choice. The book of Jonah tells us, as plain as you can see it, without the gospel, every person's heart carries in it the ability to twist something and use it as a weapon. So if everybody's got this problem in propensity, what can be done about it? Enough problematizing, let's try to fix this. What does God want us to do about it? Number three, here's our response to violence. Okay, the narrative of Jonah is designed, I think, designed to prompt us to want to do what the king of Nineveh does here, what he tells his people to do. It's a word that appears four times in his little short speech. It's the Hebrew verb shub, and it means to turn or to return to, go back to where you were from or where you were designed. Most often it's translated in the Old Testament as the word repent. And he says it in various ways four times, let them Shub. Let them give up. Let them repent of their evil ways and their violence. And when we read this, we are supposed to also want to give up. Yeah. Repent of our violence. We're supposed to read this and think, my God, if the worst culture in the history of the world at that time could repent and do away with their violence, what about us? What about us? And then invites repentance is supposed to shock us into doing the same. So what does it mean then to do that? What does it mean to shub, to repent? Three things in specific the Ninevites do here. Three things, three parts to biblical repentance. This appears all through the scriptures, really in focus here in Jonah 3. All right, three parts to biblical repentance. Here's what they do. First, there's a spiritual or theological repentance. That is the king and the Ninevites, at least temporarily here, they surrender themselves to the will of God. They say stuff like, who knows? Lord, it's your will. Whatever you want to do, we, we, we're surrendering to you. They, they say, well, you should call urgently on the one true God. Don't call on your idols. They can't help you. Call on God. In other words, real repentance is spiritual first. Remember David's prayer? I think it was Psalm 51. God, against you, I've sinned. I've sinned. See, violence, we're shown, has spiritual roots, supernatural roots. Repentance is spiritual first. Second, repentance is also personal or relational here. That is, the king personally put on sackcloth. He sat down in the dust. He modeled for his people that he was involved with this as well. He didn't just, sorry, sit in his palace out in the suburbs and condemn the violence down there in the mean streets. No, he took accountability for his own violence, his own uh, complicity in the matter. See, uh, repentance is also personal. But third, I'll spend the most time on this one. Repentance is always and also practical. Here's what I mean. The king, if you'll notice, he used his office to issue a decree. Uh, he used his office and his government to influence public behavior. Uh, he and his nobles, that's the government, they issued an executive order that people should fast and the violence must end. Now, here's what he didn't say. 
He didn't just say, well, Jonah, you know, people are going to be violent anyway. Why bother addressing it through the way I can? Nor did he just say, well, we're just Ninevites, you know, just kind of how we roll. No. Listen, people often say, and you may hear this too, I've heard it, you can't legislate morality. And of course, is what is meant by, if what is meant by that is this, that no law can make people love you, that no law can make others love what's good or love what's doing right. Of course, that is true. Man, laws cannot change the human heart or make people love their neighbor. Listen, but every law enshrines some sort of moral choice, does it not? Every Like God's law, come on, God's law, those Ten Commandments, they carry within them some view of morality, some view of what people are made for, our teleological nature, our telos, our design. For example, we legislated morality when we abolished slavery, for example. Like Dr. King said, man, like, man, I can't, you know, a law isn't going to make someone love me, but a law sure can't prevent someone from lynching me. I think that's pretty important. And people who argue for the protection of unborn life, I would, would say, listen, we need laws that protect the unborn. And of course, on the other side of this, we need laws that protect women in vulnerable positions who are going to be affected by our nation's decision, okay, too. That's an untalked about element. We try to do this at Mosaic, care for women post-pregnancy, not just pre, that's important. But the point of this is to say, we don't just say, well, people are going to end their pregnancies anyway. Why bother passing laws about it? No, we say. People have said, no, that may still happen, but laws, the argument is, will reduce violence against the unborn. The point is practical steps are taken. Uh, Look at this. Malcolm Gladwell, in his most recent book, is called Talking with Strangers. He talks about practical steps cultures can do to communicate better and reduce violence. And he looks at this sociological phenomenon called coupling. And coupling describes what happens when humans combine some desire with a convenience of opportunity. These things work together to bring out that dark desire. But when you remove or you diminish the convenience, the desire is acted upon far less. For example, he looks at a particular form of violence, suicide, violence against the self. And he looks at the suicide rates back in England in the 1950s and 60s. And back then, the the, the British people had a type of natural gas pumped into everyone's home, of course, for cooking and heating. And they discovered, though, this gas was ultra-lethal when breathed, super high levels of carbon monoxide. And for people who wanted to end their lives, all they had to do was stick their head in the oven. Maybe you've heard that expression, sticking your head in an oven. It comes from mid-20th century England. And the famous poet Sylvia Plath, maybe you know that name, she killed herself this way. When all this was discovered, the kind of gas put into British homes was changed. And guess what? The suicide rate in England dropped dramatically. People didn't just go and find another way. And the government didn't just say, listen, people are going to end their lives anyway. It's just a tragedy. Nothing we can do but hope and pray. No, they passed a law which made it harder for people to do violence against themselves. Some still did, of course, but most of them gave up their violence against themselves. And the same was true in San Francisco. You may know the story. So many people jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge, it became like an epidemic. What did they do? They didn't just say, we're going to pray for people not to do it. No, they erected a barrier, made it impossible for people to jump off anymore. And the same thing happened. Suicide rates went down in San Francisco. The people who would have jumped when the convenience was removed, they didn't just find another way. They lived. A dark desire was decoupled from a public legal convenience. The point is (laughs) that repentance, in addition to being spiritual, relational, is also practical. Why? 
Think about it. The biblical vision, come on, of the future is what? The kingdom of heaven is what? The prophets talked about it. It's not that we turn our plows into swords. It's not more violence in the world. It's the opposite, that we would turn our swords and weapons into plows, agents of creativity, that shalom would increase, right? Repentance begins as a spiritual principle. It makes its way into something tangible and practical. So where can we get the power to do this? to repent of violence culturally, like the Ninevites needed to, or personally, like Jonah, maybe you, maybe me needs to. Number four, here's God's solution for violence. Surprising solution charts in chapter four, verse four. The Lord asked Jonah this great question. Do you have any right to be angry? We like to talk about rights, don't we? You have a right to be angry. This is God's brilliant stroke here. He's asking Jonah one question, two questions in one part, that is. Two questions, one part. First question he's asking him is this. Do you have a right to be angry at Nineveh? At Nineveh. Like Jonah, how can you be angry, mad at them with a straight face? Remember the whole bit on the boat? Where you almost killed the sailors? Why? Because you ran away. You disobeyed me. You forsook me. Now you're here on a hill rooting for their destruction. Like you're mad with a straight face. Remember the evil you've done. See, God's humbling Jonah by reminding him he's a sinner too. Oh, but second, God is not just asking Jonah if he's got a right to be angry at Nineveh. He's asking Jonah, do you have the right to be angry with me? See, Jonah was angry at God's hair-trigger compassion. And right here, I love this. We get maybe the clearest look at who the God of the Bible is in all of the Bible. Because instead of blasting Jonah for his evil, God treats him with the same love and the same compassion he's treating those people over in Nineveh. He doesn't blast Jonah for becoming evil, does he? No, no, no. What does God do? He relates to Jonah. He has a conversation with him. He comes near to him. He asks him questions. He's wanting to get Jonah to see not only how sinful, yeah, Jonah's been, but how loving God has been toward him and how loving he is being right now. God, just by asking Jonah this question, is showing all of us how committed God is towards chasing down every single prodigal and how loving he is towards this comically tragic fool of a man. And after all of Jonah's stupidity, selfishness, hatred, after all of our selfishness, stupidity, hatred, let me tell you, God loved Jonah And God loves us. God's so patient with Jonah, so patient toward us, so tender, so gracious. He is, in other words here, reminding Jonah and us of how we're supposed to see ourselves in the world. Showing Jonah, he's worse than he ever thought, but more love than he could have hoped for. He's showing us a picture of the gospel right here, is he not? That we're all more deeply flawed than we never want to admit, but loved by a God more truly than we can imagine. And this is how God wants to see ourselves. Uh, we, we should see ourselves. And this is why, this is why it matters. Because when you see now, you're no better than him or her or them. In other words, when you see you are no better than your group of Ninevites. And let me tell you, you've all got them. I've got them. We've got them. Can't stay angry. Can't hate. Can't wish vengeance. You have the right to wish evil on anybody, God's asking. Remember your flaws. Remember how you've been forgiven. On the other hand, when you see you're totally loved, you can have the courage to go into any situation like Jonah. Like one person, think about it. He laid siege to a whole city. One man brought total social reform. You can speak up for what's right. 
In other words, God's solution to evil is a new identity. New identity. Being a new kind of person in the world. A person who's been so humbled, they don't wish for vengeance. But someone who's so loved, they don't fear anybody or anything, even death. Say, how do I become that kind of person? Not by looking at Jonah right here. (laughs) It's by looking at the one he points to, though he had no idea he was doing it. In the New Testament, many years later, Jesus, when Jesus of Nazareth, when people asked him for a miracle, they asked him for a sign. They said, prove who you are. Jesus, he said, all right, you want a sign? Here's one. Seventh century BC, Jonah. That's your sign. And later on, he says, I'm not just like Jonah. I'm greater than Jonah. How is Jesus greater? Like Jonah, Jesus was one man sent by God into a foreign place to bring people out of their violence and back to God. But what what did Jonah do after he preached? We know. Jonah removed himself. He watched over a city in anger and rooted for its destruction. But Jesus, at the end of his life, he didn't just watch over his city. Come on, he wept over it. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to bring you towards me to cover you. And then Jesus was rejected by the city into which he went. And on the cross, he paid for all the evil and all the violence and all the Ninevites and all the Jonas and all the stuff that they do, we do each other. How? By taking violence upon himself without paying it back. Father, Forgive them. They don't know what they do. What's Jesus doing here? What Jonah never did or could. Jonah prayed for the destruction of his enemies. But Jesus prays for the forgiveness of his enemies. He's remembering who and whose he is. He's the greater son of a greater father. He carries with him his status as a beloved child of God. And he gives up his right to repay evil for evil. How did Jesus overcome evil and violence? By remembering whose child he was. If you're a Christian, you see that? You've been touched by that kind of grace? You can love like that. God's solution is a new identity. It compels us to turn our swords, our weapons into plows. Things that grow peace and shalom in the world. All these things are ours in the gospel. Let me take a moment and pray for us. God, thank you for this, for your, your, your pointer through Jonah and your fulfillment through Jesus. How we can be better. Lord, our world is so anxious and fearful. Sometimes it makes us want to do things we shouldn't. Lord, we just think about who you are and what you did. how you prayed for and paid for evil. Lord, help us to be people. Help your church to do better. We love you today. Give us the grace and strength to consider these words. Salah. Pause and consider how we can be people who don't repay evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.